You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week four, covering Deuteronomy 8 through 11. Good morning. So today we are a third of the way through our study. Are you excited about Deuteronomy yet? Maybe? Last time I taught, I told how excited I was studying Deuteronomy last summer. And maybe I sounded a little weird, but I have to tell you, Saturday night we were talking with our daughter. She's on the other side of the world. And she started talking to us about studying the book of Psalms. And her face lit up. And she actually used the word exciting several times. She ended by saying, the deeper you get into the word and the more you study it, the better it gets. So I want you to know it's not just me. It can happen to anyone. And it can happen to you too if you keep studying. So God is our treasure and his word is where we dig for those precious gems. So don't quit. Next week starts the section in the workbook that's a little bit different. You have only two pages of homework next week. So read the instructions on page, I didn't say it's short, I just said it's two pages. Um, Read the instructions on page 38, and then read or listen to chapters 12 to 26, and then answer some questions. And next week, Christy will tell you more about lessons six to eight. But today, we're gonna do some cardio training. Moses is stirring up the people to love and follow God with their whole hearts, not just obeying rules and rituals and not wooden legalism. We didn't ask you to underline the word heart in your text, but we could have because it's very prominent in Deuteronomy. Heart is used 44 times in those 34 chapters, but in the, 12, in the three, four chapters for today, it's used 12 times. So that's three times per chapter. Moses is really zeroing in on their hearts here. That's the Israelite cardio training. He makes it clear God wants much more than outward obedience. Corey said last week, God wants to unite himself to the people in a covenant of love and capture their hearts. God must capture our hearts and be our treasure. So let's look at eight to 11. You need that open in front of you because I didn't make slides for the verses from Deuteronomy. So in chapter eight, three other key words are repeated. Discipline, test, and humble. Those are not feel good words, right? You won't find them at Hobby Lobby framed to hang on your wall. (laughs) You have to do it yourself. But this is how God trains our hearts. What's discipline? It's training, instruction, correction to lead us to maturity. We don't really like that, but see, the word disciple comes from the same root. We all wanna be disciples, right? But we wanna get there without the discipline that makes disciples. We're always looking for shortcuts when there aren't any. The good news in verse five is that God disciplines us as a father, not a harsh coach, not a drill sergeant, a loving father. You looked at the passage in Hebrews 12 about a father's discipline. 
Look at the phrases in bold. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Discipline is a mark of God setting his love on us. God is treating you as sons. If you're left without discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons. If a, a man has sons that are going to bear his name, he watches over them, their training and education and their character development. If he happens to father a child outside his marriage, he's not so careful. Maybe he pays child support. Maybe he doesn't even acknowledge the child. They don't get that watch care that his own legitimate sons do. We are legitimate children of the Father. He has adopted us and he treats us as part of his intimate family. 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? It takes maturity to appreciate discipline. When we studied 1 Peter, I told about substituting in a middle school emotional support room and a behavioral support assistant came in to talk to the class because one of the boys had been bragging about how his parents let him do anything he wanted, stay out past midnight, skip his homework, you name it. This staffer told about growing up in a single parent family. His working mother had strict rules for her sons about homework and curfew and household chores. And the staffer said, I thank God for my mama. She made me the man I am. I owe everything to her. I'm not sure that he totally convinced the students that discipline is good. They were kind of lacking in maturity. But we would all say, amen, what a great mom, right? And then we turn around and act like middle schoolers when God moves to discipline us. Isn't that true? What about the next word, test? It's an experience designed to reveal the quality or performance of a person or thing. It reveals things that aren't otherwise clear. Usually, the person giving the test is the one looking for information, right? But when God tests, it's those of us going through the test that need to see more clearly. Our hearts are truly deceitful. We almost always overestimate our spiritual maturity. When we were first back from Thailand, David worked for a local company while we tried to clear up medical issues and get back to the field. And we were really thankful for that job. But then part of the company was sold and David lost his job. I can still remember the moment he told me. We were standing on the Water Street Bridge over Lidditz Run and my first response was shock and fear. And then after a minute, I thought to myself, if I really trusted God as much as I thought I did, this wouldn't hit me so hard. <laughs> I sort of rebuked myself. I saw my heart a lot more clearly in that moment of testing. The good thing about God's testing is that we not only learn more about God and more about ourselves, but we grow stronger right in the middle of the test. That's God's purpose. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I can think of two times in my life when a trial has cropped up and my first response was, I can't wait to see what God has for me in this. Obviously, the job wasn't one of them. I can think of a lot of times when that was not my first response. 
but I'm still growing, so there's hope. The third word that's emphasized in that chapter is humble, having humility. I borrowed Andrew Murray's definition from his classic book on humility, The Place of Entire Dependence on God. By the way, his book on humility is in the church library. So here's what he says about it. But as God is the ever-living, ever-present, ever-acting one, upholding all things by the word of his power and in whom all things exist, the relation of the creature to God could only be one of unceasing, absolute, universal dependence. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things, the first duty of, and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. We usually think of humility as being quiet and meek, but it's also possible to be very quietly self-reliant, isn't it? Especially around here. <laughs> That's not what God wants. He wants the Israelites to learn total dependence on him. He wants that from us too. That's why Jesus said in John's gospel that he is the vine and we are the branches and apart from him, we can't do anything. But that rebellious, proud, independent sin nature in us keeps cropping up and trying to set up our own kingdom. So with those three terms in mind, let's look at the text. God is using discipline, testing the Israelites to humble them. In chapters eight and nine, Moses describes three different tests that God will use to discipline the Israelites and teach them humility. One they've already gone through. Two others will come up when they reach the promised land. The first test is the pressure of hardship. That's in chapter eight, verses two to six. Moses reminds them how God tested them and provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years. And he gives the purpose in verse three. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Notice they didn't need to know the food. They just needed to know the source. Their ultimate need was not food, but to hang on God's words. God wanted them to look first to him, depend totally on him, and not on their own ability to provide for themselves. Jesus quoted this verse when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. He knew that he needed to trust God and not try to feed himself. In fact, all three verses that Jesus quoted in his temptation came from Deuteronomy. That's no surprise since Moses spoke in Deuteronomy to strengthen Israelite hearts to trust in God. The 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness were a parallel to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, except that Jesus finished his test without sinning. The Israelites not only failed their test outright, they didn't even seem to learn from their failures. Then Moses warns the Israelites about two tests that are coming. Don't you love it when a teacher tells you ahead of time what will be on the test? The next test is the pitfall of prosperity. That's in chapter eight, verses seven to 20. 
A literal pitfall is a trap disguised to look safe or even attractive to an unsuspecting victim. My husband grew up in the jungle of North Thailand. He tells about a pitfall the villagers built to catch a tiger who was stealing their pigs. They dug a deep hole, rigged a couple of logs across it, tied a big piece of bear meat to the trigger, and when the tiger took the bait, he dropped into the trap and was pierced through the heart by a bamboo stake embedded in the bottom of the pit. Not the easy meal he was expecting. In, in chapter 8, verses 7 to 10, Moses gives the most complete description yet of the incredibly fruitful, resource-rich land that God has for them. Abundant water, bountiful crops, minerals in the hills. What pitfall could there possibly be in the wealth the Israelites will enjoy? Isn't their upcoming prosperity an obvious blessing from God? Moses says in 8, 17 to 18, beware, look out, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. We keep hearing that, don't we? For it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is the provider. All they have comes from him. They need to humbly confess that it's all from God. Moses actually warned them in verse 14 to take care lest their hearts be lifted up. That's the opposite of humility. Christopher Wright says about this passage, I made it so I own it is never the bottom line of biblical economics. Verse 18 sticks a very simple but fundamental pin in verse 17's balloon of complacency and pride. You say your own power and strength produced this wealth, and where do you think they came from? The fact is that all human strengths, gifts, abilities, and life itself, along with the material resources out of which the wealth has been created, are the gift of God. We are as little the makers of our own strength as we are the makers of the earth. So to remember the Lord is to recognize that all is from God. This is the first principle of biblical economics. Sounds like he's been reading Andrew Murray, doesn't it? God's people are not owners, but humble, accountable stewards. But complacency and pride sneak up on us, don't they? So don't get trapped. The third test, the pride of self-righteousness, is described in 9.1 to 10.11. After telling how God will subdue powerful nations before them, Moses warns in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." 
The Israelites might want to pat themselves on their backs after all their victories, feel how wonderfully righteous they are, so much better than their wicked neighbors. They'll be tempted to think that their own goodness has earned their status, but they are where they are by the grace of God, not because of anything they've done, but in spite of what they've done. In the verses that follow, Moses reminds them in detail of how deeply they've sinned against God in the past and how only God's mercy has preserved them. That's the heart of the gospel message that you looked up in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2. By grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. We cannot take credit for it. That's not to say that righteousness and seeking it is bad. Remember that in Exodus we used Noah Webster's definition of righteousness, conformity of heart and life to the divine law. That parallels Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. By being conformed to the image of Jesus, we are conformed in heart and life to the divine law. That's what God desires from us, and it is his doing. What he doesn't want is self-righteousness, thinking we can achieve that on our own, and that it makes it us better than the people around us. Just like prosperity, righteousness is something that only God enables us to achieve. We need to keep rehearsing the gospel to ourselves and living in humble dependence on God to work it in our lives. This section describes at length the Israelites' sin and Moses' own intercession for them. Twice, after the golden calf incident and after the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, God offered to destroy the Israelites and make a new nation out of Moses. You get that in the Exodus account. Both times, Moses refused the honor that God offered him, and instead, he interceded for the Israelites. Certainly, they deserved to be destroyed. But instead of acting self-righteously, Moses interceded for the sinning people. He interceded on the basis of God's promises and on the desire to see God glorified among the nations. And he was passionate and he was persistent. Do we really believe in the power of intercession and answered prayer? How well are we interceding for the situations around us? Do we humble ourselves in prayer for them or walk away in self-righteousness? These three tests apply really well to us too, don't they? We all face hardships of various kinds. How do we learn to depend totally on God in the middle of them? There's no doubt we're prosperous. Tony preached a few months ago that we're all wealthy here, whether we recognize it or not. How do we steer clear of that self-reliant pitfall of wealth? And I do believe that the church in America is often tempted towards self-righteousness. How do we recognize that and avoid it? Bottom line, how do we learn humility, that total dependence on God that will keep us from failing these tests and others like them? We will never just drift into humility. 
We need to stand against the tendencies in our own hearts that fight against it. And we need to keep our grateful focus on our all-sufficient God. That takes us through chapter 10, verse 11. Moses has reminded them of past sins, warned them about things to avoid. Now he'll give some positive instruction. Look at the verses, at the verbs in verses 12 and 13, 10, 12, and 13. Walk, fear, love, serve, keep. There's a whole lesson in each one of those, right? We can't do that. Then in verse 16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. How do you circumcise your heart? For the Israelites, circumcision, cutting off a small piece of flesh, was a mark of being cut off or separated from the world and of being set apart for God. Although God commanded physical circumcision, he also wanted it to be an attitude of the heart. You looked up Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Paul makes explicit what Moses says in Deuteronomy. True circumcision is more than skin deep. It's a heart attitude, cut off from the world, separated to God. It applies to both men and women. And it's not something we can do in our own strength, something the Spirit accomplishes in us. When we get to Deuteronomy 30, you'll hear Moses prophesy that one day God himself will circumcise their hearts. Once again, depending on God, we need to examine ourselves periodically and see if there are ways that we're becoming reattached to the world and the flesh. It's so easy to get tangled up and lose that set-apartness that God wants. So Moses then goes on to talk about ways to cultivate that connection to God. In 1017 to 21, he reviews the character and nature of God. It's coming. God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, he is your praise, he is your God. Don't you love that? Remember who this God is that you serve. In 10.22 to 11.7, Moses reminds them again of God's mighty acts in history. How many times have we heard that in these chapters? Rehearse what God has done for you. In 11, 8 to 17, Moses reminds them of the good things God has promised them. Another beautiful description of the incredibly fruitful land God has in store for them. They can not only look back to the past, but also look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. Rehearse God's good promises. And in 11, 18 to 25, Moses says to immerse themselves in God's word. Keep the word physically near to them. Discuss the word in all situations of life. As Corey said last week, they're to be saturated and to saturate their children with it. One of my most idyllic summer memories is of our family sitting on the dock at Assateague Island working on a memory passage from Ephesians. Summer at the shore, family together, God's word. It just doesn't get better than that. 
Saturate yourself and your family with God's word. Moses ends chapter 11 with a promise and a warning. He says that he's setting before them a blessing and a curse. Two distinct pathways, two choices. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses will give more instructions about the ceremony they're going to perform, with one group standing on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessings, and another group on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. Moses is getting the people's hearts in shape before he really digs into the law in chapters 12 to 26. Above all, he doesn't want the covenant to be just a system of rules. It is a living relationship with a loving, faithful God. So you can go home and tell your families that you had a cardio workout today with Moses as the trainer. And who better to train our hearts in humility than Moses? Numbers 12.3 says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Instead of me closing in prayer, I'm going to ask you to pray. We're going to play a song, and as you listen to the words and see them on the screen, if you're willing, make them your prayer of heart commitment to walk humbly before God.
Teach me. 